For May 13th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 567. You're a nerd. This is about things that you like. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking about the things that interest us. And what interests us this week is uh, that it's the end of a television show that is probably among the most successful television shows on, uh, you know, in recent history uh and that none of us watch with the big bang theory which is um you know the uh the sort of nerd face uh half hour three camera sitcom from from chuck lorry uh about about nerds and uh, so we're gonna we're we're gonna return to a classic classic trope uh of the overthinking it podcast from from the really early days this is a throwback um, to talk about a thing without having actually seen it. Now, uh, in two senses. One, because none of us are regular viewers of this sitcom. Uh, and two, because uh, no one's actually seen the season finale because it's coming out in a couple of days as we record this. So uh, let's, let's dive in and offer our opinions. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by Matt Belinke. Hello, Matt. Hey, how you doing? It's always great to hear your voice. And I'm also joined by Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. It's good to have you back. I know that you were involved in a uh, in a dance uh, extravaganza, and while that, <laughs> while we were recording the podcast, you were on the dance floor, probably dancing to better songs than the ones we listened to on the top ten of the <laughs> Billboard Hot 100. I mean, possibly if you if it included Whitney Houston, then it, we broke even. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> otherwise, I think I might have won out. So fair, fair enough. Now, Pete, you had a uh, you had a revelation, I think, about Big Bang Theory and about who the who actually the main character of Big Bang Theory is. Can can you set it up for us sure. for for anyone who might not watch the show what it's about and uh and, and but then but then the one weird trick, the crazy surprise <laughs> where you flipped the script and and you uh you saw everything in a whole new light. So sure. So my wife loves the Big Bang Theory and she's awesome. And she's also a little bit miffed that I'm talking about it when I don't really watch it all that often, though I watch it occasionally with her and I occasionally watch it uh, on my phone from time to time, usually like YouTube clips from it to kind of get the sense of what's going on. I have a sense for the characters, the development of stuff. Now, my sense is that this is a show which, like a lot of shows, has changed and matured over the years and is not necessarily about now what was about when it started. But for me, when I first started watching The Big Bang Theory, I think like a lot of people uh, that are on the nerdy side of things, I was a little alienated because the characters didn't mirror back to me how I saw myself. And what helped me not I mean, not like it's a necessarily a goal to, to come to appreciate a show. Pete, rep- representation matters. <laughs> well, I mean, it, that's the question, right? Is like this is a great this is a great uh, kind of orthogonal. Like if you guys saw on the basis of sex, this is like, ooh, it's sex discrimination against a man. We can argue that in front of the Supreme Court, right? Like we can argue representation matters on behalf of nerds, and nobody is going to burn down the barn over it. Um, but uh, but at any rate, it's. Um, Yes, I think that to an extent, especially with things like sitcoms, where familiarity is so important, and that's what brings you back week after week, is a familiarity with the people that are in it. There is the question of how you relate to the people that are in the sitcom, and corresponding to them is not necessarily the only way that you relate to them. I mean, I didn't relate personally to any of the characters on Frasier. But I still kind of knew who they were and liked them and, you know, wanted to see what they were up to and felt connected to them. But that was also a show that signaled pretty clearly that I wasn't really going to be very much like any of those people. They were all kind of pretty uh, out there. But uh, with Big Bang Theory, I feel like the thing that helped me uh, enjoy it more was just recognizing just putting Penny in the center. Right. Is that if you put Penny in the center of the Big Bang Theory, I think that the show, kind of structurally as a comedy, starts to make more sense in a variety of different ways that it would not do if you start from the assumption that the sort of central characters are the nerds, right? And the strange person who's come into their life is this blonde woman. Uh, and that's the kind of counterintuitive 
realization. And of course, I would challenge anybody out there who does regularly watch The Big Bang Theory and wants to weigh in on this, right, to, to come into the comments and talk about it because we don't claim to be experts. But the idea is that uh, you know the the Big Bang, right? The the eponymous Big Bang in the Big Bang Theory is the breakup between Penny and her boyfriend, which then causes Penny to leave her boyfriend and move in with the nerds, right? Like that's the Big Bang. It's the idea that there has been some sort of reorganization in the way that society has been organized, and this woman who used to not at all relate to these guys, and they used to have a ton of distance between each other, have to collide with each other and coexist in the same space. And so the early phases of the show seem very much to be a culture class show, where Penny is kind of a ditzy, stereotypical blonde, and the most of the nerds are kind of outlandish nerds, right? And then in the middle of it, you have uh, Leonard, right? And Leonard is kind of the bridge between the nerds and Penny. But then as the show develops, I feel like it shifts. And Penny goes from being the kind of outsider coming into a strange place, uh, um, the sort of the sort of one side of this kind of bimodal clash of personalities. And, and it starts kind of shifting where Penny becomes Penny is like a waitress. Penny doesn't really have a lot of money. Penny is kind of less professionally successful than the other people who are there. Although one of the big kind of questions around how to read the Big Bang Theory is how do you consider the material and professional success of scientists versus like tech people and stuff like that. But the idea being that like over time, Penny becomes more of a kind of straight person character, right? And I don't mean that in a sexual way. I mean, in the sense that Penny starts being less and less of the introduction of weirdness and more and more the the viewpoint that is questioning the weirdness of the other characters. And, and you're sort of supposed to see it from Penny's perspective, I think, and then and that Penny's perspective creates this this sort of um, energy of coping with the weirdness of the nerd world and this idea that as she sort of comes to understand who they are and kind of accept them as friends, but still kind of like poking fun at them, it becomes really a comedy of manners, wherein the mannerisms of the nerds are seen as sort of like an upper class behavior. It's something they have the luxury of doing because of their lifestyle, not something that's dangerous or bad, and certainly not something that kind of subjugates them or makes them lower class, but like foibles of people who are like higher status than Penny is in this world. And and so Penny becomes sort of like the working, the equivalent of kind of the working class maid interrogator of the kind of like foppy weirdo nobles in this kind of world that she lives in. But it's also kind of about accepting this different sort of power dynamic. And then, and then as it evolves, of course, you start having the relationships within the group start to take on more of a primacy and it becomes much more of a kind of relationship comedy where people are getting married and you're hoping that marriages are pulling through. And, uh, and then that kind of, the show kind of gets multiple different centers of gravity, uh, right? When you're when you're talking in particular about the arrival of Amy, which is kind of a big shift in the show. But but that's my basic. My answer to your question in a very basic sense, Matt, is that that the Big Bang Theory is Penny's show, and everybody else is just living in it. And we all know that people come to see Sheldon. But if the show were really focused entirely on Sheldon, it would be it would be really hard to watch. Um, or at the very least, if you go into the show looking to focus on Sheldon, I would not be surprised if you find the show surprisingly hard to watch because Sheldon is a supporting character, not really a lead, even though he gets like tons and tons and tons of time. That's my way of reading it anyway. So I'm curious what you guys in the amount of Big Bang Theory that you've watched, how you've kind of come around on the kind of comedic relationships, because this is not a sitcom about family. And that was what kind of makes it weird in that sitcoms that are about family have a kind of vocabulary that you can understand and contextualize pretty easily because it all kind of goes back to, you know, Mayberry and, you know, father knows best kind of nonsense. Uh, and this is sort of like Friends, but it's also sort of like the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. It's it's sort of like it's always sunny in Philadelphia, but not really. It, it might you might think that it's like Silicon Valley, but it really isn't. It's kind of hard to identify in the taxonomy. Uh, it's it's sort of like the good place because it's about a blonde single woman and, uh, among a bunch of weirdos. But I don't know. It's it's all pretty tough to nail down. I don't know. Matt's plural. What do you guys think about interpreting <laughs> the Big Bang Theory? Um, so I've only seen a few episodes, but I have been told numerous times by like uh, parents and friends that like, oh, you should be watching the Big Bang Theory because you're you're a nerd. This is about things that you like. It's about Star Trek and Lord <laughs> of the Rings, and you know they they you know are 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 geeks like you. And I always find it like deeply offensive because okay. to me the Big Bang Theory seemed like it's like nerd exploitation, right? It's a show. It's nerd face. 
Yeah, I mean, nerd phase, nerd exploitation. I mean, we if we can discuss the the if we if we feel like it to go back into the cultural connotations of these things and how appropriate they are. But the, the, my sort of impression of, of not a regular watcher is that this is not a show by nerd by nerds and for nerds. This is a show for normies using this sort of like the trappings, the very superficial trappings of nerddom. Um, like they're laughing at the nerds. They're not laughing with the nerds so that when they do a Lord of the Rings episode, it's not really about like what it's like to be like a Lord of the Rings fan. It's just like, it's just like they, I think the episode I saw is they, they somehow find a prop that was one of the rings used in the Lord of the Rings. And they, in a very predictable way, uh, immediately sort of like become very, very golemy and, and coveted deeply and begin to like sort of betray each other and, and uh, get very suspicious because like, you know, only one of them can possess it and it's going to like uh, turn them evil and tear them apart. And it, it honestly, like the, the episode, of, if it has anything, um, any sort of pop cultural antecedent, it's that episode of the Simpsons where they get radioactive man number one. And, and, you know, they, they just, like, can't uh, find a way to, like, co-possess it without, like, you know, completely going crazy. Um, so, like, I mean, that's a – it's a super basic – I mean, like, like Chuck Lorm, who is the guy behind um, – the Big Bang Theory is like makes sitcoms that like could have come out of like the seventies, right? Like he could easily go back in time and produce an episode of Happy Days that would that would feel and and I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. I just mean that like he is working in a very classical sitcom model, probably like the last of you know this kind. He feels like a like a dinosaur, right? That like he's he's doing these laugh track sitcoms. In fact, like it's not just a laugh track sitcom. The Big Bang Theory is, I believe, to to this day, to the bitter end, filmed in front of a live studio audience. Yeah, and that just seems like like a weird. Like what's what's the point? I mean, I suppose you could, you know, if, if you're him, you're just like, oh, you get this energy, you get this feeling from like you know shooting in front of a live studio audience. But it just feels so. You know, like, like, you know, I, all I could do is like hear this voice. It's like, cheers, it's filmed in front of a live studio well, audience. And then I like mean, Norm walks into the bar. So that the two, like the two models by and large of, uh, of half hour comedy production are single cam and multicam, right? And single camera is a show like, uh, 30 Rock, you know, where it's done by, uh, I, I think 30 Rock actually was shot on film, believe it or not. But like, uh, whether or not it's shot on film, whether or not it's, uh, it's, you know, actually shot with a single camera. Modern Family, for example, uses two cameras that are running all the time so that they actually don't have to shoot a lot of coverage. Like a camera can get the group shot and another camera can, can go in for the, go in for the close-ups or the inserts or what, whatever. Um, and they shoot on digital, but the, the, like, this is the kind of the film-like thing where it's shot uh, on a set without an audience or it's shot out on location or something like that. Multicam is the old, uh, is the old model and it has its roots in early television being more or less filmed live shows, you know, and the, the studio and the studio audience just being there and the cameras kind of being incidental to the uh, main, uh, to the main action, which was the, the, which is the the live show, the live performance that was going on. Whereas single cam is a much more filmic sort of thing, and that like it's it's a lot less. Um it's a lot more alienated, uh, a lot, a lot more invested in the illusion of, um, a lot more invested in the illusion of kind of these things actually happening out out there in the world, and kind of a lot less uh, alienated uh, is what I actually meant. And except in a show like Thirty Rock, where you can go, you can do all these weird cutaways and flashbacks and and things like that, which make that style of show really hard to shoot because um, each of those is a setup, and you can only do so many of those in a day. Um, three three cameras sitcoms are filmed um, largely because like are that way because uh, it's sort of a cheap way to do it right like from table read to shooting the actual thing is a week like I think you can do it you can do the table read on Monday and be shooting Friday night with an audience of tourists or you know people who are just doing something interesting on a Friday night and it's actually done they like bring them into a soundstage that is that has bleacher seating set up you know like uh uh, like a kind of arena 
seating, looking down at the the stage, which has three sets set up like shoebox dioramas, one right next to each other, you know, and you you might. Um, it might have been like it's. It was really disorienting to see that the the tool time uh, set was right next to the Taylor household. You know, wasn't like far away. Tim the Toolman Taylor only had to walk three feet to be in the in the thing in the uh, tool time set. Funny story. They actually would bring in special audience for the tool time audience because they appeared on camera. Um, so they were uh, not quite extras, but they were like selected for a look, um, and uh, and. They were actual studio audience, but not the the main studio audience. One last thing is that there's a funny, there's a probably apocryphal story about how the fourth camera got added to multicam. Like if you think of a scene of two people talking, three cameras, one gets the two shot, and then you get close ups of each each actor. So like camera two is the is the two shot, and then one and three cross to uh, get the uh, to get the over the shoulder shots of of each actor, and the um, you can do. And, but then there, there was like uh, Mork and Mindy and Robin Williams would just go all around the set and he would not you know, obey any sort of um, a, any sort of blocking or, or you know, prearranged, uh, you know, agreements <laughs> between the director and the cast. So they added a fourth camera that was just like follow Mork, just watch what Mork is doing. And that's uh, so now there's a, a fourth camera that's kind of a special that can do do a number of things in a lot of uh, in a lot of shows. Um, anyway, it's super it's super economical. That's why you, that's why you do it. I like the the Robin Williams emergency camera where like if he just completely starts rolling around, you can always cut to the wide shot until you figure out like what the hell is going on. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking, so, so, I mean, the, the thing that I was debating before this episode, before we recorded this is that like, you know, does the big bang theory seem like a show for nerds? And, and by the way, like as my benchmark of like what a show for nerds by nerds is, I always like look to Futurama, which I feel like is very sincere, both in it's sort of like, um, the way that it, it it drops in pop culture and like you know the like when they do like a Star Trek episode they have like a ton of inside jokes about Star Trek but also like really work in like you know secret codes and like references to like obscure uh, mathematical theorems like you know the, it, it really embedded with like Easter egg for like the hardcore fans um, like is it is the the Big Bang Theory that or is the Big Bang Theory basically like a show for Middle America that. Uh, you know, uses these these trappings of nerdum, but like you know, doesn't really have any deep understanding of nerdum. And then I I, I thought about um, All in the Family, right, which is the show uh, from the seventies about uh, Archie Bunker, who is this sort of like New York, this uh, blue collar sort of prejudiced guy. Um, and the show was meant to like Norman Lear, who created it, was like you know very liberal guy, and it was supposed to sort of like point out the ridiculousness of his prejudice by, by uh, making fun of it. Right. But there was this really interesting article in the New Yorker uh, back in 2014. And we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, Matt, we can still do that. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, the yeah, answer like, is yes, by the way. Yes, we can still. Okay. Sorry, I was, I was <laughs> muted. I answered in the affirmative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so in the the whole thing is that like it was it was about the the rise of the bad fan. Um and basically being like there's a, a subculture of people who really loved all in the family but completely missed the points or just like interpreted it in a way that its creators didn't mean for it to be interpreted that instead of like looking at Archie Bunker as like somebody who is like wrong and misguided and laughing at him, they, there were people who watched and thought he was completely right. And in fact felt that all in the family was sort of normalizing these attitudes that they had secretly had. And he sort of like gave them Archie Bunker, in fact, like gave them sort of permission to be prejudiced in public. So like, you know, it, it almost had the opposite effect for the group of people. And the New Yorker added uh, article ties it uh, to the Sopranos, which I I believe like the Sopranos is not a pro-violent, pro-mafia show. It is not supposed to be glorifying Tony Soprano. Um, but like there are certainly many people who watch the Sopranos for like to glorify in the sort of violence and 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 to sort of like revel in like, you know, when when the that opening uh 
a disclaimer that, that that card comes on that's like this episode contains nudity, adult themes, extreme violence, strong language. It's like those people pump their fists and they're like, all right, nudity, guys, nudity is coming here. Do you um, not do that when you ever see that screen for any HBO show ever? Because I sure I, do. <laughs> I do it with like my it. wife. We're like, nudity, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, I think actually, that's by that, the, by that's that metric. The, uh, Sorry. <laughs> No, I was I was gonna say like this is I feel like uh, we're we're about thirty seconds away from like the was the, the donkey affic problem is coming back, <laughs> which is sort of like you know on the one hand, you know is it is it possible to to have like an anti violence show right that, that like if you if you try to make like a war show like the point of the the show like you can do all the interviews you want about how this is like the futility of violence and how revenge will like merely destroy yourself but like people are going to tune in to see like those awesomely choreographed sword battles or or you know you know the 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 cast of hundreds like retaking winterfell so it, it doesn't matter like you know all the subtext and all the sort of like uh mournful monologues you put in like violence is so compelling in a pornographic way um but yeah i mean like so so to sort of to bring it back it does strike me that the big bang theory may have two audiences right that like it it can and i mean it is like like let's be honest like i i may sort of roll my eyes at it but there are many nerds who feel like the big bang theory does represent their culture and the big bang theory has gone out of its way to to feature many actual scientists and nerd figures like you know will wheaton guest starring on the big bang theory i don't feel like that's for middle america right like like if my theory is true about how the big bang theory is really just for normies i don't understand how the normies care about will wheaton or you know like stephen hawking doing a cameo and everything those those are for the nerds so it strikes me that like the big bang theory may be able to sort of successfully and honestly that this may be a one of the reasons why it's been so successful um is that like it's playing both sides right that it's a show that's enjoyed by nerds but also by people who sort of look down upon yeah i mean so i this is this is a uh gets into i think something that's very interesting i a lot of sitcoms or a lot of television shows that are kind of long running have at their core a tension and uh, an an unresolvable tension um that has to do with something that is kind of being worked through in the society at uh at that particular time you know um and we can just go down the list of sitcoms and kind of talk talk through them all and very often there is a a sort of stated one uh but uh also kind of an an uh an occult one as well um a hidden one and and with the big bang theory i mean i think the thing is if you're a um you know senior director of marketing Right. If you're uh, uh, Pete, what's her name? Penny or Matt? What is that? The yeah, Penny. Penny is the blonde woman yeah. who's the main female lead of Big Bang. Theory. Who's yeah. the sort of normal? Who's the representative of of the square community in right. in the Big Bang Theory? Right. If you're a sen- senior director of marketing at a mid sized company and you top out at you know seventy five thousand dollars a year, let's say, right? Like, why is there a twenty two year old computer science graduate, you know, being given a buck forty and free massages in uh, in his or her first year of employment, you know. And the, the, to me, it makes sense that both the um, the idea of of Penny is kind of being the the main character, really the in main in the sense of like most relatable, like the kind of the way into the show, and also the weird resentment, right, of the, uh, the encapsulated in the four nerds by nerds issue. Uh, or or uh, not not by nerds or not for nerds, but about you know about nerds, right? Like the, there is this weird cultural working through around an alignment, uh, a, a realignment of wealth, of you know, of um, uh, social capital and and of all kinds of measures of of success. Uh, around the the sort of issue of who are ner- who are the nerds and who have the the sort of traditionally sort of the traditionally successful you know um, uh, uh, characteristics right like vitality beauty uh, uh, determin- you know determination bravery things like that versus the kind of the more uh, the more nerdy virtues of um, 
I don't know what intellectual curiosity, master mastery of arcane knowledge, uh, so, but who are kind of socially awkward and would not, you know, would not do well at a, at a like networking mixer or, or something like that. Right. Like that, that there has to be at least a little, a little bit encoded in the show, the idea that the society is realigning itself in a way that is, that seems, um, that we, you know, that we seem, seems sort of irresolvable to the people who, who had, uh, you know, previously admired characteristics. I don't know. Is it, Pete, is that a fair, mm. is that a fair read or Matt? I mean, I have a lot to reactions to all of this. I mean, I guess that to, to answer what you're saying directly, um, I think there's a realignment. The, the sentence that comes to mind is something along the lines of you may be lonely and you may be a nerd, but in a world in which Thanos is the highest grossing movie villain in the world. Yeah. You are not lonely because you are a nerd and you need to confront the fact that there are other people in your nerd space that you would not traditionally think of as being in your space and that you might want to feel like you need to reach out and socialize with somebody and you can't. Uh, but but that's not the barrier. Right. And I think that this this is the sort of American splendor conversation, which might be part of the the struggle, the sort of what did you refer to it as the occult conflict, the occult question that's being interrogated in the Big Bang Theory yeah, is they, the American splendor question yeah. um, of which is whether it is essential to the idea of being a nerd that you are a social outcast uh, and. I mean, I would I would pose as a not necessarily as a Zen koan, but as close is Frazier anti psychiatrist, right? Like if you is if you are a psychiatrist and you watch Frazier, do you find it funny? Right? Do you find it offensive? Uh, you know, if if you if you like espresso and you watch Frazier, right? Do you think, oh, they're they're being so cruel to me? Oh, and then do you recognize that the way that you're shaking your head back and forth quickly while opening your eyes really wide is exactly the way that Frazier is doing it? Um, is is Joey Tribbiani in Broface, right? Uh, and I get, but I guess, yeah, the question here is like in American Splendor, the movie, which is based on the comic book, of course, all these people who have really severe social problems that are related to like developmental problems or severe life trauma or other sorts of really serious issues go to see Revenge of the Nerds and they come out of it feeling really connected to the nerds and they get lectured by Paul Giamatti and or, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Harvey, not Harvey Keitel, Harvey Picar, right? Lectured basing like those guys are just computer programs. Programmers, they're going to get married and go home to their nice houses in Northern California. We're totally alone and poor and devastated. You know, that's not what a nerd is. We're what a nerd is. Uh, and I think that this this idea of like expanding the tent of the nerd being expanded, whether it's like geek this or nerd that, which has become such a tired sort of question, has been metabolized by the culture because there's more people at the table. I guess ultimately what I'm suggesting is that the things that are in the Big Bang Theory are familiar. And that's why large audiences can watch the show and enjoy it, because they kind of they know what it is, whether they qualify for what somebody would call a nerd or not. These are things that people recognize, like, oh, like when you're when your mom reaches out to you and says you should watch The Big Bang Theory because it has things in it that you like or whoever it was that reached out to you. You know, they are also in a place where they're recognizing this thing that you liked. And maybe when we were growing up, you know, and we were playing Ravenloft in the basement of the, you know, chemistry wing and getting thrown out by the teachers because they thought we were gambling or something. I don't know if that happened to you, but it sure happened to me. You know, that's not the world we're living in anymore, right? Like they, they they now know they're like, oh, that's that thing that you like that I recognize that's familiar. And it's part of this sort of metabolization of this culture that used to think of itself as niche and kind of isn't anymore. Well, Pete, um, although I would still float out those questions about, you know, is uh, is 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 uh, is is uh, George Costanza jerk jerk face. Huh. Uh, it's like the the jerk minstrelsy sore ran out of you. These are not oppressed groups, right? This is not minstrelsy, right? Like this is these are this is not like uh, you know they're not they're not being marginalized so that they can be sent back to the plantation, right? Like this is uh, 
But at the same time, I don't know. I should I should stop talking and let the questions speak for themselves and see what you guys have to say about I, it. I just want to say, Pete, that my version of that is that what, what we played was uh, we, my high school got a, some kind of WM Keck Science Foundation grant to put a computer terminal at every desk uh, in the math and science rooms, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. And this was, there was no, you know, we like, uh, we were already, we within half a day had administrator passwords for windows for work groups or, or whatever it was. So in my calculus class, the game was one student would go up to work a problem at the board uh, with the teacher at the front of the class. Everyone else would stare intently at their computers, supposedly like following the material on the screen, but actually playing network doom. Uh, in <laughs> <laughs> wow. You could play doom. Yeah. They when, were all, you could, you could play doom on anything. Yeah. They were all land. <laughs> they were all land together. Yeah. The, 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 computer you guys are real nerds i'm a fake nerd because i didn't know that you could land party doom on a school <laughs> so that was uh you know that, that that was fun and then like it was this weird you know kind of round round robin musical chairs game um where you have to uh you know the the next person coming up has to have their seat taken over by the person person going down so there was a i mean there was a weird um weird musical chairs thing i mean this is i mean it's a, a, yeah i mean it's interesting pete your your analysis proceeds from the point of view of the marginalized group and asks about kind of the legitimacy of group membership uh and the legitimacy to um claims of marginalization uh from the characters in the show i'm i <laughs> i'm actually more interested uh, here in the superordinate group and the su- how the superordinate group is kind of negotiating uh, negotiating um, something for itself uh, the you know um it, sort of in the way that that Oscar Wilde say that it says that like wickedness is a myth invented uh, for people to account for the curious attraction of others. Um, that that like uh, sort of nerdiness is uh, invented, it, it, right? Like is always kind of defined from the outside uh, to to account for like the curious sort of behavior of others. I mean, and that's how you know that's how sitcoms work, especially the the mass sitcoms, the the multicam um, ones that are supposed to do just a ton of business. Uh, in beer commercials or whatever, car commercials that like um, it has to be, you know, it it the the question the kind of the complex manifold complex questions of representation uh, about the uh, scientist characters cannot possibly be the important questions in a show that wants to you know have tens of millions of people uh watching it and so needs to have kind of a a, a mainstream sensibility you know um it's uh so like i i, I guess to me the the analysis that I, I would sort of look at it i would sort of stare you down in, right like across the divide <laughs> uh, across the divide of the like superordinate subordinate uh you know dichotomy i would s- stare you down and be like no you know not not uh not less filling tastes great you know and say like um that that the sort of the important question here is how how does the definition of nerdiness in the show serve to help uh, a mainstream you know non scientific non tech company uh, audience um, understand something about itself you know yeah I, I would suggest i don 't know Matt if you want to jump in i don 't have to jump right in, but I have something that came to mind you know i mean <sighs> I mean, the only thing I, I might throw in to sort of uh, amplify what you guys have been saying, which I think is, is generally right, is that the the theme song, which is a little ditty by the Bare Naked Ladies or by some of the Bare Naked Ladies, is sort of like. I, uh, by the way, I thought the your interpretation of the original Big Bang being like Penny moving in with them is interesting, but the way that this, the theme song spells it out is sort of like there's there's a progression. There, there's almost like like a, a necessary progression. Of, of evolution in human history that is like led from like the very beginning of time to the present. And it's this sense that like what you're, what you're watching now is just like the next step in an inevitable march of progress. Right. It's, it's this sort of thing that like, like, like these guys are what's coming. Right. Just as surely as like, you know, there was there was the, you know, single cell life forms and then things emerged from the sea and then there were the pyramids. And now there are these guys uh, the, you know, and it, and it feels 
like, and, and then what? And the final line is like, and it all started with the big bang. So, I mean, it's funny. It's like, on the one hand, it's, it's this really simple on the nose, double entendre, but it also sort of suggests that, you know, everything that we're seeing here is like, um, that there's, there's no free will, right? There's no choice involved. It's all just sort of like, uh, an equation that's being worked out. And like, these guys are like the remainder at the bottom of the page. That is pretty funny. I like I like that interpretation. Um, so so to talk about the actual show and how it interacts with what Matt you're bringing up, it, we got to get to Sheldon, right? Because Sheldon is so important, and of course Jim Parsons has won four Emmys for best. Well, I guess it's lead actor. I refer to him as a supporting character only because he's never the straight man; he's always the character person. But it seems to me, again, and this is from watching you know a few dozen episodes of the show, that a lot of the action of the Big Bang Theory, from the perspective of the superordinate group, revolves around people being insensitive to the perspective of other people. And to, and so the superordinate group feels misunderstood or not listened to, right? If we're referring to Penny as the representative of the superordinate group, and we're saying that this is a show in which people are kind of engaging with a dynamic of nerd culture on some level, that the the interpersonal problems of the Big Bang Theory are often problems about other people not intuiting your own kind of emotional reaction to what's going on. Uh, I mean, this is presented the Big Bang Theory with something of a re- of a reference to the spectrum, though hardly a scientific one. But and it's not just Sheldon who exemplifies this. Like each of the characters has their own sort of obliviousness to the feelings of others. And so, if you were then to say, okay, like for example, in Seinfeld and in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, each character has kind of a snide selfishness, right? Where where they're always out for themselves. And their their sort of uh, extensions to each other in social relations are always under threat of being undermined by their their just basic selfishness, which can be really petty and silly, uh, even to the point of like people's wives dying from licking envelopes, right? Like stuff like that, right? Uh, and but in the Big Bang Theory, it's not like that. People aren't um, hostile, right? I would say. So I heard. To talk about Thanos for a second, I heard James Brolin give an interview about Thanos, and so, and I think it was uh, Stephen Colbert was asking him about why Thanos didn't want to multiply all of the uh, resources in the universe in order to uh, feed everybody, as opposed to chopping the population of the universe in half. This being a pretty obvious, you know, mathematical criticism of many mathematical criticisms, and the way that James Brolin characterized it is he said that that Thanos. Thanos's character sought to manifest his ideas in a in a callous way because Thanos is callous, right? And so, if you were to think of kind of the character flaws of the characters in the Big Bang Theory that cause them to manifest the plots of the episodes, the primary flaw is obliviousness to the emotional relationship of other people to the things that you do, and, and a harmless obliviousness, like it ultimately. Uh, an obliviousness that is not rooted in hurting other people that is ben- not not harmless but but benign or venal right and that uh and that that is the way in which it kind of intersects with the with nerd culture in a particular way because it's important that the characters are socially awkward because they are not mean to each other uh, i mean sheldon and that's the funniness of sheldon is that he's mean all the time he's tremendously mean but he doesn't really know that he's being mean right he's not really aware of it and, and you don't really blame him for it he just doesn't get it Right. And so a lot of if you watch kind of like later Big Bang Theory, you watch Penny and later Big Bang Theory. A lot of it is like, you know, oh, hey, Penny. Hey, I just wrote this giant. This is Leonard. This isn't even Sheldon. Hey, Penny, I just wrote this giant proposal for the president of like the Brazilian Particle Physics Association who I have to go see tomorrow. Could you take a look at it? And and she's like, I'm just going to pretend I read this because I'm not going to read 200 pages of documentation like right now. Right. She doesn't say it like that. Uh, And he's like, oh, come on. You didn't even look at it. It's like. You didn't recognize that it is not reasonable to expect me to read a 200 page document that's entirely outside of my my uh, my understanding. Right. And my my basis of expertise. And it's not that you were you you told me to do it and you're mad at me because you can't control me. It's that you didn't think of the fact that uh, how I would react to it. Uh, and so that is where I would locate the sort of superordinate relationship to the Big Bang Theory. And it's about what do people see and care about? And do they care about me? Uh, you know, what is that? I mean, I'm going to go see what these people actually care about, because it seems like they don't care about me. 
Um, and, and maybe if I kind of negotiate with them and explain to them kind of who I am and what it is about me and what is it about me that they don't get by the way that they treat me, like we can kind of have a fun, happy relationship. Um, I mean, this is, again, a conjecture from somebody who has watched some but not all of the show. Uh, and my proposition for like what maybe this because I think I think when the characters are negotiating relationships, a lot of it is like that too, marriages and such. Right. It's like you don't really get that in the marriage. I want this. Right. And it's not something like, oh, you're so lazy. Right. Oh, all you do is drink beer and play video games or whatever. Uh, it's that you don't get me. Uh, and let me explain to you who I am. And a lot of the laugh lines are people kind of exasperatingly explaining obvious things uh, to people who are very smart, uh, which is the irony of it. Um, so there you go. That, that's my take on the sort of superordinate or, uh, uh, audience of the Big Bang Theory and kind of how it relates to what's going on. So, I mean, this is this is part of what grates on me about the show is that, like, yeah, I agree that a lot of the humor comes out of the idea that these nerds are socially awkward, right? It's, which is the most sort of painful old school nerd stereotype that like all these guys are on the spectrum somewhere and they don't understand. They're all Spockish, right? They don't they don't get feelings and they don't they, they can't handle simple human interactions in the way that like us normal people can um well they do it in so, different ways but you know they have different flaws that cause them to do that but continue continue no i mean i guess i guess i was just saying like you know does it feel as somebody who's watched more of the show is it more nuanced and more fair than that or is it just simply like oh these like nerds are like like social goofballs like they may be smart and they may be more successful than us but like they just like you know they're not like regular people to some extent right it's like third rock from the sun where they're literally (laughs) aliens and like you have to like explain feelings to them except for like in this case they're not aliens they're just like you know they just were like in the band in high school Right, right, right. I don't know. I guess a lot of hay is made out of the um, specificity of their interest and knowledge and how other people don't intuitively get it. But at this point, I think that might be best left as an exercise for the reader. Yeah. Right. So like watch the Big Bang Theory yourself as a listener and determine where you fall on this whole kind of analysis. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people who are good at bar trivia have a, you know, mastery of arcane factoids. It's not, you know necessarily yeah. a, a marker of uh uh social awkwardness and anyway i pete what do you think of my idea of the that uh sitcoms you know encode a kind of anxiety in in the culture and like they're they're they are sitcoms precisely because they um they encode an anxiety uh that you, you, because you know successful ones run for many years and so the anxiety is kind of irresolvable it's like woven into the fabric of society um at a certain point it's just this new thing that we have to live with um and uh you know that it's uh and and that very often the the like the manifest the you know manifest one of the show conceals a, a latent one right like mashes mashes you know manifestly about the vietnam war um though though set in korea right uh but it's it's also about a kind of um, unmoored fraternity, you know, uh, something, something along the lines of like, uh, what, what, what do you have, what happens to human relationships when you evacuate families from the, the idea, uh, of the relationships? I mean, I think you suggested the cheers was very similar to that. Um, one of your, one of your best ones that really kind of flipped the script for me was pointing out that 30 rock is, is about, you know, anxiety about women in the workplace and that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, um, and how that, how that plays out like the, this is can we can we do a like typology of the different shows and how they you know how they have changed over time i think so i mean the one that comes to mind having you just having brought it up is full house and we could say that full house that the sort of occult anxiety beneath the core premise of full house is that the moms are all dead right and it's it's sort of like you know there's dads and there's kids and the moms are gone and this is like horrible right uh, and well, that, it's that, about, what, it's about yeah. women entering. It's about women entering the workforce, right? And the idea yeah. that a certain amount of—I mean, it's—it's it's obviously it's distorted because these things become farce, right? But like, what yeah. what what happens is that uh, the men have to do kind of three men in a baby style, right? The men yeah. have to do uh, domestic work, child rearing work that is traditionally coded feminine. Right. And there's so if we were to pick out the sitcoms from that particular era that are focused on the idea of like the family is under threat 
because of the changing uh, working conditions of the parents and also the sort of non-traditional uh, uh, dimension of the parents. I think I think I also, uh, when we were talking about this earlier, referenced the idea that sitcoms in the 80s and 90s are about aging boomers who rebelled against the strictness of their own parents, finding that they don't have the structure in their lives to control their children, which is not to say that their parents were any better at controlling them, but just this idea that we're supposed to be able to control it. And things like We Both Have to Work is part of that. But there's shows, you know, like Full House, like like uh, um, My Two Dads is a big one, right? Mr. Belvedere, where it's like they have a butler because they can't handle things by themselves. Char- uh, Charles in I charge. Mean, Charles in charge, right? Who's step the, by step. Like literally, yeah. who's the boss? Yeah. yeah. These are all kind of like riffs on the Brady Bunch in some way or another, where like the kids are too big and mighty to be controlled by the parents. And the parents have this sort of like original sin in their past that never gets talked about. That's the core premise of the show, which is that they both had previous marriages. Right. Do you feel like Alice on the Brady Bunch is is key, like the presence of this sort of like domestic servant is is uh, like without her? It wouldn't quite work in the same way. I think so. I think this I think interloper, you're right? That that you yeah. need it to make because otherwise, like they couldn't cope. There's all there's often an interloper. So for me, I always thought that Alice kind of lived half in the kids' spheres and half in the adult spheres. Although you could think of Alice as being the surrogate parent for the parents, right? Because um, that's like Wilson in Home Improvements. I was right. going to say, uh, like, it's a yeah. very, like, Wilson, like, when the, when the parents are sort of, like, at an impasse, Alice is the one who sort of, like, nudges them in the direction of the resolution, right? Right, right, right. And that, like, it's very predictable that, like, like Wilson, I mean, I remember, like, I, I had a uh, How to Write Sitcoms book mm-hmm. back in the day, and it, it said flat out that, like, Home Improvement is the show that you should start on, because Home <laughs> Improvement is the most formulaic sitcom on, t- not necessarily the worst, but just right. that the structure of the episodes is, like, super predictable, that, like, you will have a certain amount of like tool time, you know, uh, segments. And then like Wilson will show up like, you know, exactly like three quarters of the way through and like gives up sort of a speech, which will sort of spur the resolution. Um, yeah. So, so I mean like that, he, he, he plays this like very set role, but in, and never goes, you know, very, the, the key thing about Wilson is like, you never see him. Right. He only plays that role. He's like the Oracle of Delphi. Right, right, right. And so, like, there's this the ringing, the changes of the man of the house is not capable of being a dad because being because something about changing gender roles has created this anxiety for him. And so that's like home improvement and everybody loves Raymond and like man with a plan. If you've watched the the Matt LeBlanc sitcom, I say with like a slight amount of contempt, "Eh, it's fine. Uh, But but um, and what are some other ones that are like that where it's like a single dad or the dad, not even single dad, but the dad is with the family and the dad. Oh, no, we don't think the dad is going to be able to do what what he's what he needs to do in order to take care of things. I mean, you could probably love Ben Cosby, right? By the way, because because sitcoms are um because sitcoms are for the majority culture, it's dads, right? Whereas the 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 actual kind of workhorse in single parent households, uh, you know, statistically is mom, you right, know? right? Like it's actually mom who's sort of getting screwed by like the accessibility of divorce or the you know um, the kind of need for two income households or for uh, a a mother who had been a, a homemaker to go back to work. Um, like that, uh, uh, you know, after the collapse of a marriage, um, you don't see those as much, no. you know? And no, when, those are dramas like, like, uh, like Gilmore Girls. Yeah, sure. Right? Or, uh, uh, I was actually thinking like the, the absent parent drama is party of five. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and like, uh, but I mean, there, there was Murphy Brown, but, but Murphy Brown has a glamour job and like, is not, um, you know, uh, Murphy Brown has a glamour job and in like, to a certain extent when, when there actually is, when you are supposed to have a kind of blue collar working people, um, sitcom where the, the issue is sort of social realism, like Norman Learish, like, uh, like, uh, Roseanne, or even to a certain extent, the Simpsons where, you know, Homer works in a, in a nuclear power plant, but he is not a nuclear physicist, you know, um, uh, that he's, uh, He's uh, that that the the couple the marriage is like super solid in that uh, in that scenario you know like Rosanna Danner are um, 
the I actually like I actually remember from childhood watching an episode of Roseanne where they go to bed together and uh, talk about having sex and like get a condom out of the uh, uh, out of the nightstand because they can't afford any other method of birth control and they can't certainly can't afford to have another child right like and and um, it was like uh, I I only vaguely comprehended what was going on at the time but the the uh, uh, you know that like the idea that there's a marriage that's solid that there's a sex life between two people who like each other and like who you know are are at least good enough at getting along you know to like sustain a family right like uh wh- whatever the hardships you, you sort of need that because you can only you can sort of only kick out one leg of the four-legged stool <laughs> at a time you know uh yeah. and still have it still have it be a comedy and the kind of the wobbliness of the the now three-legged stool is the the comedic potential you know of the premise i wonder it's interesting looking like i'm now i'm like looking through different ones and kind of building various parts of the syllogism it's interesting that the subgenre of sitcoms where a family is led by a single mom is stilted it seems in the united states toward the south yeah because you got you got grace under fire and you've got reba right Uh And, and and just this idea of like well with reba she's always maintaining the like well because reba mcintyre has this like very effervescent personality that seems to be almost a mask that she's always wearing and grace and grace under fire right um is is this sort of very hard-nosed but kind of keeps herself together right and there's this this drive on these shows that these women who are single moms are going to be able to keep themselves together and in a show where the mom is like a show where the mom would cry when it was appropriate to cry would be a drama like Gilmore Girls, which is also a comedy, right? But it's like, um, or Weeds, I guess, would be a little bit different. Um, it's just, it's in, I mean, this is all very kind of like wibbly wobbly because you can, you know, interpret in different ways. Like, is who's the boss, right? A story about a dad who's been, you know, diminished to, to a servant or about a society that can't tolerate that a single mom is running the home and invents an imaginary man to come help her, right? Like, that's, I mean, it's sort of a little bit of both, I guess, when you think about it, right? You've got, you know, Laverne and Shirley and Kate and Allie, um, which is, I guess, again, sort of, we've seen the emergence in sitcoms of the non-mother woman, which is something that the culture uh, that Western culture has been struggling with for a long time. And I suspect Eastern culture as well, though I'm not as familiar. Right. But it's like that's sort of a different character than the ones we're talking about. I guess that's part of this typology is like sitcoms that are overtly about family versus sitcoms that are only subliminally about family. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, oh, it's, it's there's so much there's so many different ones and there's such a huge typology of all of them. And I would say that let's be careful because sitcoms are not always made for the majority culture. There are lots of niche sitcoms that are made for specific civic cultures uh you know subcultures and there's a big enough pie to go around well that's and, a, uh, sure now, it, now that's a, that's a uh sorry sorry matt that, that's a um uh, an artifact of the the kind of splintering of of channels right when there were three networks sitcoms were made for the majority culture yeah, yeah. Well, i mean there's the jeffersons and stuff but anyway sorry oh, fair go enough good point no i mean i just i just wanted to step back for a minute and just be like so we're looking at this this sitcom pie but i think it's worth like uh, uh recognizing that that pie has been shrinking for a while and is now kind of a small well let's put it this way it's a small pie and certainly among these sort of nerd demo it's a really small pie that that if the characters in the big bang theory were real i don't think any of their favorite shows are sitcoms or three camera sitcoms their favorite shows are like rick and morty right right right, right. yeah sure rick and, rick and morty which also has a very bad bad fan problem <laughs> Right, Rick and Morty, right. which is also about parents, which is also about a dad who doesn't have the characteristics necessary to take care of a family, right? Like, and uh, and the mom who has to like yeah. take up the burden of being the single parent for the most part. No, so. I'm, big, I'm 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 a big fan of Rick and Morty, and I feel like Rick and Morty f- feels like what the sitcom evolved into in a lot of ways. It feels like a more sophisticated. Take I mean I, I'm I'm playing into every terrible Rick and Morty stereotype now, and I've only just begun this sentence. But I guess I'm just saying that like I mean the the Big Bang Theory feels like a throwback, right? And 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 that like and and that is what's interesting about it is that the subject matter may be very modern, very topical, and it's like you know it's about you know online gaming and it's about like Marvel. Um, but but the form of it is a very classical 
almost uh, uh, antiquated form, right, of the, the three-camera filmed in front of a live studio audience sitcom, whereas that, like, there are all these, I mean, like, like most sitcoms that I think are, that I think of as, like, very sort of, I don't want to say cutting edge because you don't say that about sitcoms, but like, you know, your, your, your Parks and Recs and your Kimmy Schmitz and your whatever you think of as like, you're sort of like, you know, whatever else Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are working on it. Yeah. I mean, I get, I'm, I'm showing my own personal (laughs) bias here, but I just, I just feel like it's, it's those, those one camera sitcoms have been like, you know, rapidly. Those are the sort of premium, you know, even, even um, it doesn't need to be like, you know, I'm not just saying that like, you know, with, with the more sort of hip young millennial audience, because like, I mean, modern family is very mainstream and that's, but that feels like a lot more, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking I don't want to say sophisticated because it sounds so cinematic, maybe. It feels less cinematic. like television. It's also maybe. like complex. Like, you know, like the uh, like Modern Family did a whole episode that was like all unfolded on like a computer screen, you know, through various pieces of like, uh, you know, of, of FaceTime calls, video chats and web pages and everything and, and emails being opened up. And like that's something that's like sort of playful and interesting and that like the Big Bang Theory would never do because the Big Bang Theory – operates under very stringent old school rules about like what a sitcom is allowed to do. You know, they, they don't, they don't like, like the big bang theory, I think like for, for all it's like, they, they definitely have like science consultants involved in it. They probably have like writers that are like as nerdy as they come, but like Chuck Lorre at the helm for, uh, you know, without saying like anything like, you know, about like whether I think he is like a, a, a talented creator, because clearly he's extremely successful and entertained yeah. many millions of people. And wrote the Teenage Mutant theme song, which is awesome. Did he? Yeah, the cartoon theme song for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He wrote it. Yeah, it's a joke in Kimmy Schmidt. Whereas like Kimmy Schmidt singing the song to herself and says, I hope the guy who wrote that has a billion dollars. And she walks past a sign that says Chuck Lorre wrote that song. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, you know, but it's no, also, I, just, I mean, like, is also a kind of a niche Netflix half hour comedy, you know, poking, poking in the eye of, uh, you know, CBS behemoth half hour comedy. Right. 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 Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was just saying that, like, his comedic sensibilities were sort of set 20 years ago. And he's been running that same play very successfully again and again. But like, he is not evolving right he doesn't seem super interested in doing a one camera sitcom he is going to like hold the line and keep doing you know variations on like dharma and greg as long as he can get away with it you know what's I, his next uh, project sorry go ahead uh well he he has mom you know that's been doing pretty well with academy award winner allison Janney. and i let I, me guess it's, it's a one camera sitcom that completely proves me wrong no 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 it's no. A, it's another three okay. camera it's it's anna ferris and allison Janney, uh which i watched because i love both of those actresses and i just couldn't get over the format you know, I just couldn't get over the style and the the laugh track and the 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 kind of joke a minute thing. And and even though mom is a little uh, boundary pushing, it's about sobriety. Uh, the characters are are alcoholics and they um, you know struggle with like sobriety. And there's a lot of jokes made about some pretty edgy topics for a uh, um, you know for a, a mainstream sort of audience you know it's not like oh those kids those lovable scamps again it's you know it's it's a little more raw than than that but yeah format wise it's a it's a three camera half hour have you guys watched the kaminsky method that's like the no, michael the... douglas chuck lorry project i haven't i haven't watched it i'm not familiar with it. i'm just looking I mean, at michael what chuck douglas is a sitcom uh, it's a web series. It's a comedy web television series created by Chuck Lorre that premiered on Netflix in November of last year. I mean, and it stars Netflix- Michael Douglas, Alan Arkin. Yeah, it's crazy. I like. I mean, I think of like uh, I think of like web series as being like head on over to to my YouTube page. Make sure to mash that heart, fam. You know, like this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's what I think of when I when I say web series. Though I suppose Netflix is is strictly speaking a web series, right? Um, Although, and there's also Bob Hart's Abishola, which is Chuck Lorre takes on interracial dating, which is coming up. <laughs> so I think we can all look forward to blazing takes on that one, uh, <laughs> one way or the other, starring Billy Gardell and Falake Olawafoyuku. So, but uh, I, I just like, like, I, I don't know the the Modern Family. If you watch Modern Family, which which I do, there is like stuff. It is. 
does have kind of a veneer of being pathbreaking, and and it is. It's a you know successful uh, married gay couple. I mean, successful in that like they have a good relationship, um, and it's you know uh, it's about them flourishing in their lives, not them struggling in their lives, and and uh, um, you know and the the paterfamilias of uh, played by Ed O'Neill. Um, is not, you know, uh, sort of is not, is, is revealed to be like the, the kind of the hollowness of that, uh, traditional, traditional kind of masculine, uh, head of the family stereotype is, is revealed because he has, you know, severe deficits in, in certain areas, like, you know, talking about his feelings and then, you know, the usual ones, nothing too, um, nothing too uh, uh, outlandish, but like it, it really does kind of ref- re- return to the, like the, uh, the Brady bunch or the, I love Lucy or the, whatever the Gilmore girls, like we, we all love each other, you know? And that's like uh love will love will uh, sort of keep us together. And like through all of life's foibles, we sort of find that. And, and um, I enjoy watching that, you know, I'm not embarrassed to, say that a, a little a little bit of like uh uh you know sentimental um family uh family warmth and togetherness uh through thick and thin you know despite our many differences despite our, our superficial differences we we all love each other and are the same deep down um i'm not embarrassed to say that i find that message uh pretty heartwarming um and uh, I, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind. You know, keeping that in my my Hulu queue. Though, though, my point is, it, it's a little less. It's a little less pathbreaking when you think of um, when you think of it as being something that's like uh, we can't. You know, we're, we're as something that kind of reaffirms uh, quote unquote traditional family values, though the people don't look like traditional uh, traditional families, right? Like. Um, Rather than like your family is someone who's out to poison and hurt you, you know, which is a much more, uh, much more kind of drama. Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I suppose. Or like reality bites, uh, you know, a lot of the like the slacker comedies of the 90s and stuff. And like the, the idea that like the, the, the family is an agent of society and is this kind of like malevolent force, malevolent sort of mm. uh, force that enforces conformity and, and, yeah. and constricts your, your flourish. Yeah. Like in Full Metal Alchemist. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite sitcom. Hohenheim's Rules. (laughs) Sorry. I don't think we've we've mentioned uh, Young Sheldon, the the spinoff. I don't think we've mentioned Young Sheldon nearly enough. (laughs) Yeah. But here's, I mean, well, here's, I don't, I've never seen an episode of Young Sheldon. Young Sheldon started in uh, 2017. Yeah, in November 2017. You know what Carl Sagan said? It said, to explain young Sheldon, first you must create the universe, right? (laughs) Yeah, and it's already been two seasons of aired. It's been renewed through a fourth season. But one thing I think is interesting about it is that that is a one-camera sort of Malcolm in the Middle style sitcom. Mm. And so it, it strikes me that sort of like... It, it's it's a spinoff, but in a way, is it like an evolution, right? Is it sort of like it's not just it, it is a prequel set in the past, but like it's it's a more modern style of comedy, maybe. It's the Mad Max Fury Road of bow tie jokes, is what it is. It's just taking an old <laughs> story and just bringing every resource we have in modern technology and every storytelling advancement that we've come up with since we directed Happy Feet into a great new achievement. So yeah, no, young. I think. Is that so? That's the idea, right? Is that Young Sheldon is is the new hotness? Is the sort of uh, the next evolution? Um, it's a shame that Young Sheldon happens in the past and not the future, yeah. because it feels like the future whenever you watch it. Definitely, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I agree. Maybe Young Sheldon is also best left as an exercise. To the <laughs> there's a there's a great. I just have to say that. Do you guys ever you ever watch the um, the hunk sketches on Saturday Night Live? I don't usually cite Saturday Live sketches on the podcast, but there's like beard hunk, car hunk, right? Like virgin hunk. And they're all takes on like The Bachelor uh, and where they just have a a parade of women come in and have like very samey conversations with a drab blank slate of a man. Have you guys watched these Saturday Night Live sketches? No, but uh, there's a, a, 
there's a great one where Jessica Chastain is on. And one of the one of the uh, conventions on the sketch is that the women all recount the dates that they had with the man. And they always involve some sort of cross promotion with another CBS property. So it's so I just I can't get out of my head whenever someone mentions John Sheldon, Jessica Chastain and basically a prom dress sitting down and said, I had a great time today. Huh? Miniature golfing with young Sheldon. I'm sorry I cried. <laughs> like, and it's uh I don't know. Or do they go hot air balloon riding with young Sheldon and miniature golfing with the cast of NCIS? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I all I hope is that I hope that I hope that young Sheldon figures out what to do when it runs for 20 seasons and then has to run up against chronologically the first episodes of the Big Bang Theory. Do you think they'll just keep making it and remake the Big Bang oh, Theory? Wouldn't that be great if the if <laughs> oh. at a certain point you got into shot for shot remakes of <laughs> Of the Big Bang Theory, that would be that would be yeah. so wonderful. <laughs> it just it's like the new Star Trek reboot, right? Where they just like it's a new cast, but they they uh, they're recreating the original adventures for a yeah. new generation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like it's where like, Better Call Saul might go, and Young Sheldon fears yeah. to tread. But <laughs> like towards towards the end of How I Met Your Mother, they were getting up to a point where like they were going to have to they were they were almost going to be forced to have them because we knew what year in the future. Uh, the story was being told that we had a good idea of how old those kids were. Like he had to meet the mother no matter how many seasons they wanted it to run just because like he was going to have to conceive some children sooner or later. Yeah. So like they almost they almost ran up against the present with that show. And then they finally they finally called it just a time. As a final exercise to the reader, maybe we could pose the question, what is the occult anxiety that is being dealt with in How I Met Your Mother? Because uh, there, that one is that one is a can of worms. I think <laughs> that is it. That is a can of worms for sure. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of calling it at the right time, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for listening to uh, the Overthinking It podcast. Thank you, Matt and Pete, for podcasting. Uh, very good luck to uh, to you know uh, Chuck Lorre and to the cast of The Big Bang Theory. I, I hope you kids go somewhere. And, uh, you know, from, from our, from our, you know, big established podcast, your little concern of a TV show, we, uh, we wish you all the best. If you want to come on, if you're looking for something to do after it's done, any of you, you folks, if you want to come on the podcast and talk to us either about the big bang theory or a future project, I feel like we can offer you that as an opportunity. If you just sort of need to do something creative, one bag of mint Milano's. For every yeah. member. If you'll you'll give us plot lines for future seasons of, of Young Sheldon. All right. <laughs> thanks for uh thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.